into the door when I noticed a man at my elbow. I'd not seen him approach, and the sudden appearance made me start. He was a slim man, with a short brown beard and small gimlety blue eyes. I recognized him as the occupant of a flat on the top floor, with whom I'd passed the time of day on the stairs. "'Can I speak to you?' he said. "'May I come in for a minute?' He was steadying his voice with an effort, and his hand was pawing my arm. I got my door open and motioned him in— No sooner was he over the threshold than he made a dash for my back room, where I used to smoke and write my letters. Then he bolted back. "'Is the door locked?' he asked feverishly, and he fastened the chain with his own hand. "'I'm very sorry,' he said humbly. "'It's a mighty liberty, but you look the kind of man who would understand. I've had you in my mind all this week when things got troublesome. Say, will you do me a good turn?' "'I'll listen to you,' I said. "'That's all I'll promise.' I was getting worried by the antics of this nervous little chap. There was a tray of drinks on a table beside him, from which he filled himself a stiff whiskey and soda. He drank it off in three gulps, and cracked the glass as he set it down. Pardon, he said. I'm a bit rattled tonight. You see, I happen at this moment to be dead. I sat down in an armchair and lit my pipe. What does it feel like? I asked. I was pretty certain that I had to deal with a madman. A smile flickered over his drawn face. I'm not mad, yet. Say, sir, I've been watching you, and I reckon you're a cool customer. I reckon, too, you're an honest man, and not afraid of playing a bold hand. I'm going to confide in you. I need help worse than any man ever needed it, and I want to know if I can count you in. Get on with your yarn, I said, and I'll tell you. He seemed to brace himself for a great effort, and then started on the queerest rigmarole. I didn't get hold of it at first, and I had to stop and ask him questions. But here's the gist of it. He was an American from Kentucky, and after college, being pretty well off, he'd started out to see the world. He wrote a bit and acted as war correspondent for a Chicago paper, and spent a year or two in southeastern Europe. I gathered that he was a fine linguist, and had got to know pretty well the society in those parts. He spoke familiarly of many names that I remembered to have seen in the newspapers— He'd played about with politics, he told me, at first for the interest of them, and then because he couldn't help himself. I read him as a sharp, restless fellow who always wanted to get down to the roots of things. He got a little further down than he wanted. I'm giving you what he told me as well as I could make it out. Away behind all the governments and the armies, there was a big subterranean movement going on, engineered by very dangerous people. He'd come on it by accident. It fascinated him. He went further, and then he got caught. I gathered that most of the people in it were the sort of educated anarchists that make revolutions, but that beside them there were financiers who were paying for money. A clever man can make big profits on a falling market, and it suited the book of both classes to set Europe by the ears. He told me some queer things that explained a lot that had puzzled me, things that happened in the Balkan War, how one state suddenly came out on top, why alliances were made and broken— why certain men disappeared, and where the sinews of war came from. The aim of the whole conspiracy was to get Russia and Germany at loggerheads. When I asked why, he said that the anarchist lot thought it would give them their chance. Everything would be in the melting pot, and they looked to see a new world emerge. The capitalists would rake in the shekels and make fortunes by buying up wreckage. Capital, he said, had no conscience and no fatherland. Besides, the Jew was behind it, and the Jew hated Russia worse than hell. "'Do you wonder?' he cried. "'For three hundred years they've been persecuted. 
and this is the return match for the pogroms. The Jew is everywhere, but you have to go far down the back stairs to find him. Take any big Teutonic business concern. If you have dealings with it, the first man you meet is Prince Vaughn Onzu something, an elegant young man who talks Eton and Harrow English. But he cuts no ice. If your business is big, you get behind him and find a prognathous Westphalian with a retreating brow and the manners of a hog. He is the German businessman that gives your English papers the shakes. But if you're on the biggest kind of job and are bound to get to the real boss, ten to one you're brought up against a little white-faced Jew in a bath chair with an eye like a rattlesnake. Yes, sir, he is the man who's ruling the world just now, and he has his knife in the empire of the Tsar, because his aunt was outraged and his father flogged in some one-horse location on the Volga. I could not help saying that his Jew anarchists seemed to have got left behind a little. Yes and no, he said.